0: Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. The title of this panel is Hot Topics in Music Licensing, which is may or may not be what we talk about because licensing could be pretty narrow and we're going to talk about legislation and some government agency rulemakings, but it all touches upon music issues and copyright uh, and the troubles, concerns, and opportunities facing the three panelists that we have here today. So, my name is Gary Greenstein. I'm a partner in the law firm of Wilson, Sincini, Goodrich, and Rosati, which is based in Palo Alto, and I work out of the D.C. office. And I've got two current clients on the panel and one former client on the panel. And at the end of the day, I'll have you vote to see if you can figure out uh, who I currently represent and who I used to represent to see if I was fair.
1: Uh, or who you should continue representing. Or who I should continue <laughs> to represent.
0: Uh, so, starting next to me, we've got Chris Harrison, who is the Vice President of Business Affairs and Assistant General Counsel at Pandora Media Inc., uh, Leo Lipstein, Lipstein uh, who is Product Counsel for Google, and Brad Prendergast, who is Senior Counsel Licensing and Enforcement for Sound Exchange. Uh, so, we have uh, great experience on the panel, a very good mix. We do have one glaring omission, in that we do not have a representative of music publishers on the panel, and frankly, we don't have an artist representative uh, on the panel as well, but I, uh, well actually, let me take that back. Brad Brad would correct me and say that SoundExchange represents the interests of artists, which they do, and I think that YouTube and Pandora are two of the best friends that artists uh, probably have in the online streaming world. So why don't we start off with, uh, there are several things going on in the music licensing space uh, that... Congress is now being asked to step in and look at creating some solutions. Uh, On the one hand, you've got music publishers who are the owners of the underlying musical works, uh, the notes and lyrics to a song. And they get paid a mechanical royalty, which is the term of art for reproduction and distribution of a musical work, and they get paid a royalty when... Music is sold on CD, on LP, digital download, cassette, et cetera. Also for interactive streaming. And as most of you probably know, sales are disappearing, both physical and digital, or at least they're declining, and physical declining pretty rapidly, and digital appears possibly to have reached a peak uh, and on a potential decline. And so music publishers are complaining about they need to continue to make money. They've also, in their mind, been receiving less than fair market value for the public performance of their music when streamed online by services like YouTube and Pandora. So there's been a bill that's been introduced called the Songwriters' Equity Act, which would amend a current provision of the Copyright Act, and this is getting a little bit technical, when royalties are set for non-interactive streaming services such as Pandora and the royalties are to be paid to the entity sound exchange, those rates are set and the evidence presented and the rates established cannot be looked to or used as evidence in proceedings to set the rates that are paid to music, uh, music publishers for the public performance of the underlying musical work. So musical work is embodied in a sound recording. Lennon and McCartney write a song, John, Paul, George, and Ringo record it. Two different copyrights and that's what you need to keep in mind here. Music publishers don't like the fact that Pandora is paying roughly 46% of its revenue to Sound Exchange as of March 31, 2014. Um, and they're paying roughly 3.5%, maybe 4%, 4% to music publishers. So that disparity is something that the music publishers don't like. So a bill has been introduced that would remove this prohibition on these particular courts established in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and would permit them to look at this additional evidence. Now, Chris, from Pandora's perspective, do you think that the proposed amendments in the Songwriters' Equity Act is appropriate? Is, is there any reason why a court should not be able to look at roughly all relevant evidence? And wouldn't it be relevant what is being paid for sound recordings uh, if you're also trying to figure out what should be paid for the musical works?
2: Well, I think it, certainly there's uh, you know reasonable arguments to be made for why uh, a sound recording uh, royalty uh, would be a reasonable and appropriate benchmark to use in the rate setting for for music publishers. Having said that, you know there are the, the purpose of a benchmark is to be as as uh, closely comparable to the uh, license that's uh, being priced, and there are clearly Far more comparable licenses available to consider. Uh, The problem that the publishers have is that those far more comparable uh, licenses have rates that are significantly lower than what uh, Pandora pays as a percentage of revenue uh, to the uh, sound recording copyright owners. So, you know, if you go back and look at the arguments that were made by the record labels and by record label executives who had uh, management authority over both the label side and the publishing side of the business during web one the the first webcaster rate setting proceeding uh, the record labels themselves went to great pains to explain to the the copyright royalty board uh, how different the business models and uh, particularly capital investment made by record labels uh, as opposed to music publishers so you know the, certainly understand uh and appreciate you know the the desire to have all relevant benchmarks be considered um but if you're going to leapfrog over as i said uh benchmarks that are are clearly more comparable benchmarks for the performance of of the underlying musical works uh by terrestrial radio uh by satellite radio uh by uh, ra- you know tele... uh, tel- uh, uh radio streamed or performed uh, through cable or direct-to-home satellite broadcasters. Uh, all of those seem to be far more directly comparable for rate-setting of musical works performed over the Internet than what a record company gets uh, for the
3: performance of its sound recordings.
0: Brad, do you have a dog in this fight with – or does SoundExchange have a dog in this fight over the Songwriter Equity Act?
3: No. We, I mean, we don't, we don't oppose this act. Um, and and I, I want to take this point right now to say that I, I agree with what Chris just said because it might not be it might be the only time that we actually agree this afternoon. So uh, get, we get that one in. and I think we can just conclude right here. Um, the uh, it, it's really important to, um, to to understand the distinction between evidence and, and benchmarks. And there's uh, we don't see any reason why uh, the the publishers. Shouldn't be able to enter into what evidence whatever they think is worthy of being evidence, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, as Chris said, that it's a it's a legitimate benchmark. And Chris articulated really well the differences between um, the um, uh, the copyright value in, in the sound recording, the copyright value in the, in the musical work, and 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 that's that's really the critical difference. There's um, big financial investments that go into. Creating a a, a recording um, and 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 it's hard to come up with a, a a way of comparing the value of the sound recording and the value of the musical work that isn't done in a dangerous way.
0: Brad, is there a a ratio that Sound Exchange's record label members would believe would be an appropriate ratio between the value of the sound recording and the value of the musical work?
3: Yeah, I don't I don't think that that's the way that. That it's not the way that we at SoundExchange think. I don't know, and I don't think it's necessarily the way that the the labels think. Well, I don't really I, care if that's yeah. the way you think. I'm just yeah. curious
0: yeah. as to the, whether or not there's a a ratio that would be acceptable.
3: Oh, it's I, no I mean, one it, to one. No, I, I, it's it's just not the the right way to think about it. Now we get into this uh, a little bit of a, of a split in in perspectives here, um, where. From our view, the, the copyright owner and, and the sound recording and, and the featured artists who are, whose tracks are performed, um, they should be entitled to get whatever the fair market value of their work w- will bear, um, and likewise f- for musical works. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to um, be in any sort of ratio that is an, e- even consistent from, from one delivery mechanism to, to another. Um, and I, th- I, I think that services um, would love to just be able to pay one price for both rights and, and be done with it, um, and that 's you know that has a lot of appeal, but that 's just you know right now that 's not the way that that sound exchange thinks it 's not the way that that uh, the record labels think
2: One might also wonder. Uh if the music publishers are concerned about a ten to one ratio uh, with record labels uh, with respect to performances on internet radio, uh, they're getting a one to zero ratio uh, with respect to sound recording copyright owners on terrestrial radio so this thirteen billion or fourteen billion dollars in terrestrial radio revenue uh, that gets generated every year uh zero dollars of that gets paid to the sound recording copyright owner
0: and for the actually can we uh, yeah. Yes, in the United States. Can I have people show show of hands? How many of you are recording artists? How many of you are tech, are employees or founders of technology companies? Can all the tech people sit over here? <laughs> yeah, all the artists sit over here. There was a lot of. How many of you are actually. lawyers trolling for clients and want to represent <laughs> some of these companies? Okay, how many investors are in the room? I know I see one and probably doesn't want to raise his hand. Uh, Okay, good job. Uh, So on the the issue of the fees being paid for the sound recording versus the musical work on the public performance side, there was recently a litigation between Pandora and ASCAP, a rate-setting proceeding before the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. And in that case was the issue of how much should Pandora pay to songwriters for the use of underlying compositions. And that outcome... Uh, followed some, uh, how would we call it, gameplay by music publishers potentially where they were selectively withdrawing rights from each of ASCAP and BMI to try to claim that a license or licensees could go to ASCAP to get rights to use the musical works and the ASCAP repertory for all uses other than what are called new media uses. So internet related uses by a Google or a Pandora. Uh, And in that proceeding, the judge established a rate of 1.85% of revenue. uh, And publishers have been complaining about uh, not only the outcome of the rate, but the decisions that require them to either be all in or all out of each of ASCAP and BMI. Uh, I guess the the first question I have is, was that – decision properly, or was that rate properly determined? Uh, probably not very fair for you because you were a litigant and we're going to know your answer. Uh, Leah, what what is Google's view as to the determination of the rate court, both as to the rate and the decision that publishers have to be all in or all out?
1: So I think our concerns are much more on the second half of that question, not so much the rate, although, of course, from a business perspective, the rate matters a lot to us, um, I think the bigger concern for us is, uh, from an operational perspective, what happens uh, when uh, there's that kind of uh, lack of certainty in licensing. So, for example, if um, one publisher can just pull out of ASCAP, how does a service uh, like YouTube, for example, uh, have to uh, recognize? How do we recognize uh, that change? Um, and how do we uh, understand content on our platform uh, in respect of that withdrawal? Um, even if one, even if a publisher withdraws, even if it's only one publisher withdrawing, if they withdraw from only one PRO, for example. Um, how do we identify the content on the platform that is then subject to that withdrawal? Um, that's a huge operational challenge for us. And uh, I think it's—I uh, think our concern at the end of the day winds up being much more about uh, content stability and platform stability in light of uh, that potential major pothole in licensing.
0: Well, why shouldn't publishers be permitted to freely associate with ASCAP for some uses but not for others, Chris? I mean, you were in the middle of this litigation.
2: Uh, well, I, I don't think uh, the ultimate position uh, that we took was that there weren't uh, – well, let me say it this way. The the Department of Justice uh, took the position, uh, at least with respect to uh, – in, in the BMI litigation, that the consent decrees as written don't permit partial withdrawals. So uh, whatever else uh, folks may think about our legal position – turned out to be consistent with the Department of Justice, which is the, uh, the body that, that, uh, that wrote the decrees. Um, having said that though, I mean, we've never, uh, I've certainly never taken the position that partial withdraws uh, sort of on their face aren't something that uh, shouldn't be allowed. Uh, if the decrees uh, are gonna be amended, right, there's a process by which that those amendments occur. There's uh, discussions with the public. Uh, folks who have an interest in uh, both the user side and the and the owner side uh, can discuss, you know, how uh, the. Uh, goals of copyright in general, uh, the dissemination of creative works to, to the public can be furthered by partial withdrawals. The concerns of content users uh, like a Google or a Pandora uh, and, and our need to understand uh, and our desire to, to ultimately pay uh, correctly the, the owners of the content we use um, – uh, and ultimately, to be done in a way where, you know, if if we're going to have a, a, a market that actually, in which folks actually compete, uh, then we'd like not to see the kind of behavior that uh, the judge found uh, had occurred in, uh, in in the ASCAP case, uh, which she described
0: as coordinated behavior. So, just so for those who don't know, if you don't know what the consent decrees are, please raise your hand. Okay, so. Publishers are competitors who are selling similar goods, musical works, and under the U.S. antitrust laws, competitors are not supposed to get together and fix prices. That's exactly what ASCAP and BMI do. They fix prices for a new work, which is a blanket license of all of the works that they represent. Because there was an alleged violation of the antitrust laws, they entered into a settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice. That's what the consent decree is. That is the settlement agreement between the government and ASCAP on the one hand or the government and BMI on the other hand. And there are lots of rules in that consent decree that govern ASCAP and BMI, one of which is if a licensee wishes to use the works in that party's repertoire and cannot negotiate an agreement with either ASCAP or BMI, you can petition the rate court and this federal judge will establish a rate for you. Uh, Actually each of the PROs can also petition if the negotiations fall apart. And because it's a federal judge, after that determination, the decision can be appealed to a United States Court of Appeals, in this case, the Second Circuit, and ultimately, it can go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in general, it provides a mechanism whereby you can get access to lots of works. If a publisher affiliates with a PRO, you get access as a licensee to all of, works, all of the works in that PRO. Uh, so both Chris and Leo, let's assume for the moment that the Department of Justice is going to amend the consent decrees, that publishers are complaining and they they have legitimate concerns at least with respect to the fact that their income is declining. Uh, It's a separate issue as to whether or not they're entitled to a certain amount of income or their business should be sustained. Our, Our markets don't typically work that way to keep people in business, but assume that there is a desire to enable more freedom for the publishers. What characteristics or limitations would you like to see on that? One of the things I heard both, uh, both of you talk about is transparency of information. That if content is going to be withdrawn, you need to know what content is withdrawn, so you either stop playing it or you know to whom to go to to get that content.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'll speak to that. So uh, I think are already getting right at it, Gary. Uh, what we would need um, to accommodate that kind of a system is transparency into the repertoire of the PRo so that we know uh, what it is we're getting when uh, we get a license from them, and when part of you know that the content under that license goes away and has to flow from uh, flow to us through someone else, I would say that has to be part of the system today. As it is, uh, DSPs already have, uh, I think, a high value, of dif- a high amount of difficulty in truly valuing the if, uh, the licenses that we get from PROs. We don't know what we're getting until after the fact. Um, it's uh, it, that should be a feature of uh, the system today: visibility into the repertoire of the PROs.
2: There's also a, a, an issue around uh, sort of a database of record, right? One of the things that we discovered through our uh, Rate setting was the wide disagreement even among uh, the PROs and publishers as to who owns what. So we were able to to look at specific songs uh, that were very popular on our service last year and show that you know. Uh, BMI's, uh, DM, BMI's database said that one group of publishers owned it. ASCAP said a different group of publishers owned it. We went to the publishers' websites who the PROs said owned it, and in some instances the publishers uh, also had that information in their database. And in other instances they showed that they didn't own that content. And so our ability, even uh, transparency is is one thing, but if what you have transparency into is crap, then it doesn't help you all that much. And so, you know, the the uh, w- certainly one of the things uh, that uh, is frustrating from a user's perspective, right, if, uh, if anybody here, well, so we've got so, some in, uh, inventors here, uh, technologists, right, if you invent something and you wonder whether or not what you've invented might have been invented by somebody else, uh, you can go to the PTO website and you can do a search for all of the patents that have been issued, uh, and in some instances, applications that have been filed, and determine whether or not your patent reads over somebody else's. Uh, Similarly, if you've got a cool name for this gizmo that you've invented and you want to find out whether you're allowed to use that name, you can go to the trademark office and you can do a search there. And and again, it's not 100% accurate, um, but it's at least a, a place to start. You know, if you've ever gone and tried to search the copyright office's database, uh, you're better off going to the public library and, and looking through the old card catalog. Uh, it, it's 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 worthless. And you know, we th- for the complaints that I hear from content owners, and, and many of them uh, I think are valid. Um, you know, the, this buggy whip uh, consent decree in the digital age I, I thought was a, a good one. Um, the flip side is we have you know buggy whip. Uh, record-keeping, uh, and we're trying to apply, you know, digital technologies uh, to that information.
0: Sounds like it's a perfect project for Google to do, <laughs> to just host a database of all musical works that are owned. And
1: uh. Well, as Chris was speaking, I mean, I think, you know, I originally said that what we need is visibility into what the PROs are licensing, but at the end of the day, that having that isn't going to be facilitated primarily by the PROs. It's really the publishers whose works they're licensing that need to have normalized databases and systems that can actually deliver that information to the PROs in a way that can then get to licensees. It's a huge data task. Um, and I think certainly from a, a partner facing perspective and from a relations perspective, Google wants to. Um, And other DSPs want to help to the extent that they can, but there's really a limitation in in that we're not the ones who own the stuff. Someone else is. Um, They're the ones who ultimately need to uh, get their respective uh, houses in order.
2: And I would say, you know, uh Brad and, and Sound Exchange have a have a critical role to play because one of the, the big problems we have is to the extent we get information from publishers, what you typically get is a song title and composer information. Well, no one on the the user side pays any attention to the to the information that uh of who wrote the song because it's who recorded the song that Um, ultimately drives uh, the the royalties we paid into Sound Exchange. And so, uh, you get this information that is title and composer without any reference to who might have recorded it. And so, we would look in our system and you'd have, you know, here's this song titled Love, and it's written by Smith and Jones. Um, We don't have Smith and Jones in our database. We have you know 50 tracks that are all titled Love, so we would then have to go figure out, okay, is this love the love that publisher A owns or publisher B owns or publisher C owns. And so the, 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 the difficulties around publisher data gets magnified when you then have to map it against sound recording data. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Ring of Fire gets covered, what, 70 times uh, by various recording artists. Um, that's actually a really easy example because you can say, okay, I know this one ring of fire. Uh, all of these recording artists uh, are, are associated with the same publisher, um, but it can also happen in the in the other direction.
3: Yeah, but- that's right. And we, we need mechanisms to I mean, need always drives an invention. And we need mechanisms to push that that need forward, and and I mean that's a classic example of. Uh, you know, We talked at the beginning of this presentation about the difference between the musical work and the sound recording. We at SoundExchange we collect royalties exclusively on the sound recording side. Um, um, a, a, anytime one of Beethoven's classical works is played by a classical station, Beethoven is listed as the recording artist, um, and and we're, we're not we're not going to pay. Um, and and so we have to cl- we have to clean that that data, and we spend a lot of time cleaning it, cleaning that data. And we in and over time we've developed a database that allows us to recognize okay when we get this line of data from a, from a service, we can understand that that service is intending to identify this particular track, not this particular musical work, not a different track, but this particular um, track. So that and then we take that data, which helps us to identify what the service played, compare it to our internal database, our repertoire database of of who actually is the uh, the rights owner and and who are the featured artists on that track so that we can we can send the money uh, in the right place and so that's the, it, uh, it's an example of how as problems arise you can you can use technology uh, to solve that problem it's 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 a slow process it's a very slow process it's and it should have happened a long time ago um, but it's 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 in the works um, so the solution is. Somewhere down the road. I don't know how far, but it's down the road. So let, let's
0: switch from the musical work, because we've, we've now moved over to the sound recording, and we'll come back to musical works for Section 115 reform. But on the sound recording side, in contrast to ASCAP and BMI that are governed by a consent decree, Sound Exchange administers a statutory license. And a statutory license is a mechanism created by Congress, where Congress says, in our infinite wisdom, and no laughs at that, they believe that it is to the benefit of the American people to establish a regime whereby Congress eliminates many of the transaction costs of facilitating licensing. And so what happens is if a sound recording has been released to the public with the consent of a copyright owner, any licensee that complies with the statutory conditions, so the statute is many pages long and there are lots of conditions in there, and you comply with regulations adopted under that statute – and you pay the royalties and provide data on what you've played, you should, you do have the ability to play any music and, or any sound recordings, I should say. And all you have to do is you provide reports of use and payments to SoundExchange. And it's highly efficient. SoundExchange has done a tremendous job in this area. You've distributed now over a billion dollars? Two billion, yeah. Two billion yeah. that they've distributed now. And from Pandora's perspective – Pandora doesn't have to figure out who the owners are. Pandora takes the music, plays the music, and then they provide lines of code, not lines of code, but lines of information on what they played. and then SoundExchange assumes the obligation to figure out who to pay. And if you're an artist and you've not, uh, if you've released music and you've not registered with SoundExchange, you should because there could be money there for you. Uh, And it's foolish not to. If you own an independent record label, you should do the same thing. But is the Section 114 and Section 112 licenses working well, Brad? Or does Sound Exchange believe? They need improvement. They need expansion. They need to be narrowed. What's the general view of sound exchange? And, pref- yeah. and sort of give us a hint as to what your comments are right. going to sure. be on Friday no, with I think the copyright office. The
3: the, the the statutory licenses on the sound recording side. I, I think have worked out great. Um, you look at how they've allowed they've they've allowed a, a non interactive webcasting industry to 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 get going and and to um, thrive at least from the standpoint of the number of services that have come into the space um, and from the standpoint of, of the, the, the royalties that have in, in, uh, increased over time. So i uh, give you a couple numbers. Um, Ten years ago, 400-some um, uh, you know, services were using the statutory license. Uh, today, 2,500 services are using the statutory license. Uh, Ten years ago, we distributed $20 million. Uh, last year, we distributed $590 million. That's 30 times the previous amount. Um, so a lot of growth has happened. The statutory license, uh, its brilliance is that it's easy for services uh, to use. We had this conversation for a few minutes about how it's incredibly difficult to find out who owns what on the musical work side. As Gary pointed out, if you decide to use a statutory license, um, you're you're able to use any any recording that's ever been um, commercially released. Um, Pandora doesn't have to worry about. Who actually owns what it has to worry about identifying which tracks were played that it played so that we can figure out who to pay the, those royalties to, but it doesn't have to go through the process of figuring out which label owns owns which tracks so from that standpoint it's it's been great in terms of um, of, of of where to go now um, I think the biggest issue facing a statutory license is uh, is is an issue of convergence between um, uh, purely non interactive services and and services that are more that are custom radio and 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 moving on on the spectrum from non interactive toward interactive um, and and, and, and reaching closely to that line. Why is that line important? Well, uh, non-interactive services can use the statutory licenses. Interactive services cannot. If an interactive service wants to uh, stream, it it needs to go to the record labels and incur those transaction costs um, in order to get get, uh, direct licenses in place. Um, The the consumer, the listener out there, uh, is growing more and more to expect uh, the type of customization that Pandora offers, or that or or that iTunes Radio um, offers, um, or any other service that's you know a, a customized radio experience, um, and and that's moving the uh, the needle more toward the Spotify's and other interactive services that are out there. Um, the uh, and so that, I think the challenge for the statutory license is whether um, it's 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 going to be. Um, relevant in, in, in sometime in the future as customers move more and more toward demanding a more customized, perhaps more interactive experience.
0: Brad, we, we joked in a prior panel here in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago that Sound Exchange likes to kill kittens. And the kittens are a metaphor for small webcasters. Yeah. And some of the numbers you threw out, 400 services 10 years ago, 2,500 services today, $20 million paid 10 years ago, $590 million. Paid, and we can find out from Chris out of that 590 million how much of that is attributable to SoundExchange. I asked though, how many of those services that are paying uh, from that 2,500 are paying under a regime that had to be enacted pursuant to a law passed by Congress because the Copyright Royalty Board established royalty rates that were too high for most of these services, yeah. and uh, the service and the evidence of those deals is, in fact, not even admissible. So you talk about 2,500 services, but if the major labels had their way and if SoundExchange, in fact, had their way, we probably would have had many fewer services.
3: Yeah, so um, what Gary's talking about is uh, it, uh, when, when the rates were set for 2006 through 2010, um, the rates were set at, at, a, at a level that uh, webcasters um, – said were just not sustainable.
0: Well, not, not just, I mean, they may have said that, but it's also true empirically yeah. if you look at it. So let's just take Pandora as an example. Pandora, Chris just said, uh, March 31, 2014, content acquisition costs for Pandora were 46% of revenue. It's in the, the 10Q. That, the rate that Pandora pays is the greater of 25% of the company's entire U.S. revenues or a per stream rate. And... They're currently, since they're paying at 46%, you know they're not paying under the 25% prong. So the 46% is based upon the number of performances. The rates that Pandora pays is pursuant to the Webcaster Settlement Act of 2009, which currently is offering a discount of roughly 75% from the CRB rates. So if you were to look at grossing up 46% uh, by 1.75, you get a pretty high number you know, pretty close to
2: 100% of the company's revenues. I think you're looking at, looking at it slightly wrong in the sense that we wouldn't be uh, operational in 2014 had the CRB rates that were established in 2007 uh, gone forward. I mean, so they, they would have they, killed we would have been Well, we would have been, in 2007, the royalty rates would have been 130, 140% of revenue. And so you don't get funding, you don't grow your business you don't operate at 100 you know at 140% of revenue you can't make it up on volume
0: <laughs> and that yeah. doesn't include the parity that the publishers want
2: yes uh, 280% is worse right <laughs> so brad uh, and th- this is right.
0: where i throw you the softball about it's yeah. not an expense it's a blank issue but 2500 services and i see a bunch of them in the room that i know are small webcasters uh, and availing themselves of alternative rates that are extended pursuant to the – or entered into pursuant to the Webcaster Settlement Act. How is it that Sound Exchange, which is a great friend to the artist community, uh, can say that it is supporting a thriving industry when the rates it is continuously proposed – would put these services out of business but for congressional intervention?
3: So there's, I think there, it's important to recognize that the world of, of 2007 or 2008, 2009 is different than the world uh, of 2014. Um, the webcasting industry has matured immensely um, during that time. We see that and the fill in the blank word monetization um, uh, abilities of, of services, um, that, that, that their ability to monetize and, and make money selling selling ads or uh, or selling subscriptions uh, online has has improved. The um, it, it's never going to be uh, one thing that we would like to see, and this is going to be in our in our notice of inquiry response is that the the um, there should be an ability to designate. Um, certain settlement agreements as as non-precedential and and you it, you made it sound earlier like that's a bad thing that that means that those rates can't those those agreements can't be used as evidence in in and uh, subsequent rate proceedings. But I would say that they're a good thing. It means that we can continue um, as an industry to uh, have rates that allow for younger services to get going. That's what Pandora was seven or eight years ago. Um, but as time goes by and as services. Uh, mature and are able to, to monetize, then, then we do think it's important for them to be paying uh, fair market value. We can, we can have a, 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 a good, healthy debate about what is fair market value, but the rates should reach a point where they are fair, mar- uh, fair market value for, for artists and record labels.
0: How, how many people operating under one of the Webcaster Settlement Act agreements are in the room right now? Small pure play, pure play, small commercial. So a handful of companies. So there's hope. Uh, from the statements But one of the things I heard is that uh, And I'm going to use a lowercase s here Pandora, you're just slacking off And not generating enough revenue It's a, it's a revenue problem oh. You've you got to get better salespeople, More ads on internet radio You've got to charge more people subscriptions Stop giving away the music for free You're just not doing your job
2: Yeah, you know 70% revenue growth year on year Is, uh, is uh, really slacking We'll, we'll have to uh, pick that up no. No, I mean,
3: let me respond to that um, <laughs> it, we're, we're not saying that Pandora is slacking um, and, 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 and in fact, I mean Pandora has been responsible for um, a huge portion of the, of the growth in the webcasting industry um, and, and and we would never say that Pandora has been slacking off on on, on the ability uh, to monetize um, the and, and f- it, one thing that uh, is worth debating is that from from my perspective. Um, the the year over year increase in the in the rates um might have actually spurred um, pandora's um, uh, in, in ability to be very very creative in, in selling ads i mean Pandora has taken the idea of of an of a national internet radio um, service and and sold ads locally um and apparently has become pretty good at it um Pandora has taken uh a world in, in, in which listeners have an alternative to twelve minutes of of ad time on terrestrial radio to just a couple of minutes of ad time on an hour of Pandora on, on the non subscription service, um, and they figured out a way to um, to to add more um, more time per hour without without losing listeners, or your listenership continues to increase, you know, month over month quarter. So over they quarter. make
0: significant investments to, cr- to generate a creative product and innovation. For the use of music that benefits the record industry and the recording artists.
3: All true in absolute terms, not relative terms. <laughs> okay. uh,
0: another issue that is on the sound recording side, and, and one that is, uh, from a legal perspective, fascinating, is this question of pre-'72 sound recordings. And so, uh, for those of you who don't know, sound recordings didn't receive federal copyright protection until 1972, And if you were, if a sound recording was created prior to the date in 1972, it's governed by state law, not federal law. Well, there are a bunch of federal laws that services that have grown up in the Internet age rely upon, one of which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So services like YouTube that host user-generated content, uh, people can upload that music, and that music may involve Beyonce, Justin Bieber, or it could have the Beatles and the Who and the Rolling Stones, and I should not use those, all of those recording acts in the same sentence because they're not equal. But <laughs> under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, certain federal courts have held that the intent of the safe harbor provisions in the DMCA, so those are the provisions that say if infringing content is residing on your service and you're an online service provider, we will not subject you to monetary damages for copyright infringement, which is, which is a strict liability offense, meaning you don't have to intend for it to be there. You don't have to have had knowledge. If it's there, there is copyright infringement. The question is, do you have a defense against that? And Congress decided that we want a thriving and vibrant Internet. Well, what happens if you have a pre-'72 sound recording on YouTube? And if a federal court says, you know what? the DMCA safe harbors don't apply to pre-'72 sound recordings. Seems a little crazy that you allow users to upload content, and the service provider is supposed to have immunity for content stored at the direction of a user. But then you hold them liable as to whether or not the work was pre-'72 and subject to a patchwork of state law, or is post-'72 and federalized. Does this make any sense, Leo? You're... you're the representative for the largest uh, user-generated content website in the world, probably. And, Should, you, so, yeah. and you probably, I don't know, do you fingerprint to identify whether or not works are pre-'72 or post-'72? Yeah. Do you have a database that knows that?
1: Yeah, that's a hard thing to figure out. I mean, I can't know just you know, from looking at someone how old they are. Um, I don't know if that would be a useful <laughs> talent to have, but um, much less a musical work right? So, or a sound recording. Um, I think from a practical perspective, at least from YouTube's perspective, what we want is to be able to identify the content on our platform, have deals with the content owners so that we can run ads on that content and then pay out. Um, the infringement question is a slightly less interesting one to us from a, legal, a principled legal perspective. Um, again, the concern for me is primarily operational. How do you deal with ticky-tacky buckets of content on your platform that are subject to different legal rules and potentially different liability exposure uh, for you as a company? How do you build a product on that? Um, I think what we really need is uh, clarity and uniformity around um, how... Content is treated from a copyright legal perspective, and right now we just don't have that with uh, the weird patchwork.
0: Now, Chris, you're a defendant in a pre 72 uh, case, and Sound Exchange is a plaintiff, and slightly different but also related to pre 72 works against Sirius Satellite Radio. Uh, What's the view of Pandora with respect to these pre 72 works and whether or not they should be covered by federal law? Uh, Were you paying? Have you stopped paying? Uh, what's been the company's position with respect to these to the extent you can comment on it
2: yeah i mean obviously you know uh, uh i am a lawyer and we are in litigation and so uh i'm not going to hopefully say anything horribly stupid uh here, here's what's uh, here's what's um you know really uh, and just speaking uh personally here um this is one of those really kind of uh on the surface obvious uh the answer to this question uh, should be obvious. Um, we have uh, one of the world's renowned copyright scholars here, and, and uh, could probably uh, wax poetic about how it's actually much more complicated once we start sort of digging under the surface. Um, you know, the if the purpose of copyright uh, is to uh, incent the creation of of creative works for the widest dissemination to the public then federalizing pre-72 doesn't seem to fit that bill because, by definition, they've already been created, right? So there's no additional value that you could provide to a content owner of something that was created 50 years ago that would incent them to go back. I mean, I guess we could give them a time machine. They could go back in time and create more stuff. So just from, like, the public policy standpoint, um, th- there's there's the, the, sort of the, the underlying copyright rationale for why you'd grant that protection, uh doesn't appear to be there. Um, the flip side is why would the why would a recording that were made by the Rolling Stones in 1968 be treated differently by the Rolling Stones that was recorded in 1973? Right. So, just again, it's kind of the emotional, uh, logical brain kind of aligns with this. That doesn't make any sense either. So, um, I, I, again, without. Uh, I just, you know, it's hard for me to go into it too much um, being a plaintiff in a lawsuit, but it's. Defendant. Defendant. Oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) uh, You're complaining a lot. I am. I (laughs) do. Yes, you're right. Complainant, yes. Um, Yeah, again, I I, I think just from a. A lot of it doesn't make sense. The sort of the. The most perplexing thing to me in all of this is the record labels themselves have been the most vocal opponent of federalization of pre-72. So if you go back to the Copyright Office's inquiry in 2010, 2011, it was the RIAA and A2IM who joined together in filing a response saying, don't federalize pre-72. Um, so, you know, it 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 seems slightly disingenuous to me for – the very plaintiffs in a lawsuit claiming we're, we're uh, not paying them under uh, the post seventy two standard uh, are also saying but please don't put them under this uh, post seventy two standard because that would be bad too brad what is what does sound exchange want to see
3: yeah so um sound exchange by, by background sound exchange has a, an eighteen member board nine of which are label representatives and nine of which are artist representatives representatives um and and so uh what our position is it really is threading the needle. We care about the statutory license, and so our focus is on the statutory license. And what we think should happen to pre seventy two is that they should be federalized to the extent that they're uh, allowed to, um, that services can use the statutory license to play pre seventy two. The, the the statutory license, um, as as a matter of policy, was designed to allow um, services to get up and running easily and be able to play um, whatever uh, was had been commercially released. And, and as, as Leo pointed out, you don't necessarily know. You, oftentimes you don't know whether a track is pre-72 or post-71. And that's not something that services should have to worry about. Services should be able to play what they want to play and then pay for it under the statutory license and be done with it. And so we think that um, partial federalization to the extent that that puts pre-72 recordings under um, the statutory license makes a lot of sense.
0: So expansion of the statutory license, <clears throat> can we also expand it to cover interactive services?
3: Um, Personally, I would love that. Um, well, but, Sure but, you would. It would be uh, yeah. a lot more money. But then again, um, there's uh, we have other constituencies who say different.
0: <laughs> the Copyright Office is conducting what's called a notice of inquiry on the effectiveness of music licensing in the United States. Comments were due this past Friday, and then the deadline was extended to this upcoming Friday. Uh, there are a long list of questions that the Copyright Office has asked, and there will be voluminous filings that are submitted by multiple parties if you had one comment that you could share with this audience as to what you would like to tell the copyright office as to uh you have one wish as to what they could fix what would it be and we'll start with leo uh
1: facilitate online licensing and give us data please
0: data so going back to transparency of who owns what both on the sound recording and musical work side. That's right, and it's
1: not. It, 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 there is a there is a fairness element in knowing what it is you're licensing and knowing what it is that you're paying for. But I think, again, our issue is really an operational one. We we want to have a service. We want to have multiple services. DSPs all want to be able to be in this game and do this thing, but to be able to do it, uh, we have to know what is the stuff that we're using, who does it belong to, who should get paid, Um, That's just the only sensible way to uh, make these products work.
0: So after the the tremendously successful rollout of (laughs) healthcare.gov, and let's assume that maybe the U.S. Copyright Office would follow the Department of Health and Human Services, is Google in a position to maybe fund or host or manage this database? I think we sent some engineers to D.C. to help with
1: that. You actually (laughs) did. Um, But... um, so we already do that, right? Um, we have a content identification system for, uh, for YouTube, um, and we're constantly working on building that out and making sure that it can do its job effectively. I think if it has uh, the fuel to run, and that fuel is data, uh, it will run and we will build it to keep running to be you know, an efficient uh, and functioning vehicle. I think all, I think all DSPs um, uh, want that.
0: Brad, you got one one request.
3: Terrestrial performance right. It, uh, it, it, this is an an equity for for services, digital service providers. It's an equity for artists. It's an, equi- an equity for record labels. Um, we, we all know that AM FM radio doesn't pay any royalties to um, for the sound recordings they play over the air. Um, we're in it we're in an age now where. Uh, uh, digital radio pandora and others are competing with those um, terrestrial stations for the same advertising dollars and it doesn't make sense that um, the co- that artists and record labels get to have to subsidize the terrestrial stations at the expense of allowing the terrestrial uh, pandora to compete on a, on a on a level playing field with with those terrestrial uh, stations for the same advertising dollars um, enacting a terrestrial performance right would, um, would put everybody on the, on, the, on the service side on the, on the same uh, uh, level playing field, and it would allow artists and labels to be compensated for the work that they create.
2: Chris? Transparent database of record.
0: So again, similar to, you guys are ganging up on poor Brad here. Now, interestingly, <laughs> Brad is sitting, Brad, how many unique sound recordings have been reported to SoundExchange since its formation?
3: Oh, I, I I don't know. Um, I, th- I saw a number a few years ago. I think it was on the order of, of 6 million, but I, I, that's, that's old data. Only
0: 6 million? Yeah, that's
3: old data. I don't know what, a, um, what a, a, a new number would be.
0: Now, Brian Zisk, I don't think, is in the room, but uh, he was an advocate for having the RIAA when it created SoundExchange share that data. Now, one of the things that services are required to do is to report an ISRC number as an alternative in a data field when they identify what music they've played. SoundExchange has petitioned the Copyright Royalty Board in a notice of, uh, or they filed a petition. The Copyright Royalty Board is now conducting a notice of proposed rulemaking to change its regulations. One of the things that SoundExchange is now asking for is that all statutory webcasters report an ISRC number. How many webcasters can extract an ISRC number or identify an ISRC number for the sound recordings in their database? If you can identify 5%, raise your hand. If you can identify – well, actually, everyone raise your hand if you're a statutory webcaster. You're included. Uh, If you can identify 90%, keep your hand up. Okay. So we've got
2: two people here that can do it consistently. Well, I think – but you got to – I mean, there's there's a threshold question there as well, right? Because the ISRC, again, if – if that data is crap, then all you're doing is putting crappy ISRC in, right? I mean, but that's not your problem, then. That's his. <laughs> well, but it is in the sense that it goes back to why would we build on a system that... Wh- wh- why build on a bad foundation, right? I mean, part of the problem is if we buy uh, the Adele track in the UK, the ISRC is going to show beggars as the label. If we buy it in the US, it might show Sony as the label because they're distributing in the US. So even when you start talk trying to figure out who owns what and we have data, it's bad data. And so, uh, I, you know, it doesn't – ultimately, if you're beggars, you actually probably don't want ISRCs getting reported into SoundExchange if SoundExchange is going to rely on those ISRCs because all that money that uh, is getting collected for Adele's performances on Pandora is going to end up in Sony's bank account, not in beggars.
0: Brad? Would you make your? Would does SoundExchange have plans to make its database available to facilitate the reporting
3: yeah. uh, of performances? Yeah, that's that's something that you know. I mentioned earlier that we're building a, a repertoire database that will contain the metadata for for tracks that have been reported to SoundExchange in, in a cleaned way, and 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 part of that is going to be it, it is ISRC, and I think it makes a lot of sense for those, um, to, for that database to be um, something that services can can use to accurately populate their the reports of use in our in our uh, petition we right now the standard for reporting isrc is that it's e- that a service can a webcasting service can pr- provide either irs isrc or album and uh, and and uh marketing label name um there's another standard for um the pre-existing subscription services where they are to report isrc where where feasible and that's not mandatory um and but we but we th- we view it as a as an elevated standard compared to what exists right now for webcasting, and we think that that's the standard that should exist going forward. Um, now, where feasible is is the operative phrase, and 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 as I mentioned earlier, we, we think this is a place where there can be some 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 market based solutions to to that, to that problem, whether it's third parties or whether it's people uh, you know taking advantage of the, of the data that we can provide. We think that that's something that can can happen in the future to to solve that problem.
0: Now. Almost a week doesn't go by that Digital Music News, and I don't know if Paul Reznikoff is here, but there are articles posted about how little artists are getting paid and, and everyone's crying about, uh, well, I should, should not put it so negatively, let's just say that people are decrying the lack of payment that they are receiving from some of these services. And they're pointing to very low payouts. Uh, and I would like to provide an opportunity for both Google uh, and Pandora to comment on that, because on the one hand, Pandora, I believe, is the largest payor to Sound Exchange, and the money that is paid in by Pandora gets split 50 50 with artists. I question whether or not a record label would be treating its artists fairly, or do record labels treat their artists fairly, and should some of that artist ire? be directed more to the labels as opposed to the digital music services that are investing, uh, creating new products, uh, being innovative, as as Brad commended chris on for what Pandora's doing. So do do Google and Pandora want to comment on some of these attacks on the companies about the low payouts?
1: Sure, I can take that. Um, So I think... Two things. First, there is very little transparency right now, unfortunately, about uh, end-to-end payouts. In other words, how does money get from the source that generates it to the artists who ultimately created the content that made that money? Um, I think that's uh, a really difficult problem to solve. Um, in a lot of ways, I think you have some first-mover anxiety uh, from a lot of folks. You know, you've know, you seen Spotify uh, try to go one step and have... Um, Uh, Tools that uh, give artists better insight into um, how much money uh, they're generating on their platform, but I think it's a really hard problem to solve, Um, and I think it's going to require industry-wide collaboration and figuring out uh, how to improve that. Um, I think the data problem uh, that we've been talking about for a while definitely uh, goes to that issue, Um, just having a better sense of, who owns what and being able to, um, you know, sort of speak openly about that in a way that is reliable, where you don't constantly question uh, that, you know, from day one to day two, all of the data that uh, you relied on to make whatever representations about how much money you made and what made it uh, is suddenly going to go stale and that everything you said the day before is going to be a lie or it's going to just be wrong. Um, And uh, I think from the perspective of a company like YouTube, um, you know, I think, what we really want is to grow the pie. What we're really focusing on is, uh, expanding the service to, uh, for example, encourage content creation to really, uh, connect with fans of content to have them upload more cool creative stuff and get that stuff licensed so that we can pay content owners and make, um, artists and songwriters more money, uh, for, um, new and original uses of their content. Um, I think that's, uh, I think our focus is on, um, as I say, growing the pie, having the pool be larger, um, rather than figuring out, uh, rather than sort of continuing continuing the game of what I see as kind of tug of war between music publishers and, uh, and um, record labels all sort of trying to fight for the same dime being originated on the platform. Chris,
0: 30 seconds, because I want to... Give a couple of questions or get a couple of questions.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, Pandora's uh, extremely proud of the role we pay, play in the music ecosystem. You know, we we pay out hundreds of millions of dollars a year a year in royalties. Uh, you know, uh, we had a, a blog post that, that Tim did um, a little over a year ago where we detailed you know some of the the scale in terms of the number of artists on our service that are getting six figure royalty checks every year. Um, and, you know, it's 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 something we should be proud of, uh, and it's not obviously just the royalties that we that we pay uh, that we pay out. It's it's also the uh, the exposure, the you know, the number of artists that are played on on internet radio that would never have uh, that are never played on terrestrial radio, and so the our ability to expose artists to to, to fans who will ultimately love that music. Um, i will say one of the benefits uh of a compulsory license and is the fact that the the, under the statutory license those rates are actually published in the federal register right so folks know what rate we pay um One of the things that we've talked about over the last 12 months or so is the work we're doing to try and operationalize and uh, the ability for for artists uh, to see how their music's actually performing on the service. Um, One of the things that I think is really cool uh, that that can be an outcome of that is if you get a check from SoundExchange with a royalty report that says, you know... uh, And if anybody's gotten a royalty report from SoundExchange, right, you'll get a a detailed list that says this song was played on this service this many times and here's the amount of money you're getting for that. Um, You could then go to Pandora and access your account there and say, well, wait a second. Pandora said they played my song 100 times. SoundExchange said they played my song 90 times. Um, there's a discrepancy there, uh, and really empower artists and labels to, to take some, some ownership of how those royalty dollars flow from one to the other, not to su- I mean it may be an instance where uh, you know, there's just bad data uh, coming um, from the service or there's a mismatch. That there's an opportunity if we can get greater visibility uh, to have uh, uh, artists and labels truly understand that end-to end uh, uh, royalty payment.
0: So, we've got time for probably one question right up here. That's.
4: Hi. Oh, there it is. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Ari Hurston. I'm, a, uh, I'm an artist and I'm a blogger, and I'm actually, I write for Digital Music News a little bit. Um, and I, uh, my question actually deals with Sound Exchange. I, I, uh, I wrote a piece on Sound Exchange out of my frustration. Uh, as an artist trying to obtain my royalties from SoundExchange because um, I couldn't figure out how to get paid even though I signed up years ago. I submitted my reports to you and I have my music being played on Pandora all the time and um, the, the reports that I get from SoundExchange deal with um, about eight of my 80 songs that I've released and I know that all my songs are being played on Pandora. Can, so, can we get to the question? My question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bad data that Chris was talking about um, how does sound exchange look to fix that bad data um, and, and I'm curious to know what sound exchange what the steps are doing to uh, to help those artists and to Actually, get the money that uh, paid appropriately to the artists who are owed
3: that. Yeah, to give you some insight, there's a couple of. Uh, got to uh, do it in 25 seconds. Understood. <laughs> a couple of different moving pieces. One is, um, it was speaking about services generically, when the data comes in, we've got a data management uh, department, 20 people that spend their time going line by line and and trying to clean whatever data has fallen out during the first pass through. Um, and th- and those people are actually taking the, t- taking a look at the lines of data, going to you know external sources to figure out what track is they're probably referring to, and then cleaning that. Um, and then the other, uh, the other moving piece is on the artist side. When an artist registers with SoundExchange, SoundExchange needs to make sure that it's got full data on what uh, repertoire belongs to that artist. And and, and, and and we hope that we do a good job. Sounds like we didn't do a good job in your case. Um, but we try uh, to do that, and that's something that we need to continue to work on.
0: So I'm sorry that we ran out of time and didn't have an opportunity to take more questions. Hopefully the panelists can stick around maybe in the hallway. I know we've got Professor Nimmer who's going to be speaking in here. I'd like to thank Brian and Shoshana, Sanfran Music Tech, and my fellow panelists for uh, speaking today and all of you for coming. Thank
4: you.